Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Bass drops in, you know it's time to begin, and wherever you are, whenever you are, and however you happen to be listening, we're so glad you've chosen to tune in to DLC, your downloadable commentary for the week, delivered the way we love it to be, and that is completely free thanks to our sponsors, Movement and eHarmony. They're bringing the show to you, DLC, of course, the show, all about games, and there are many forms, games played on desktops, laptops, and consoles, and also Games that involve dice, luck, and cardboard. I am your host, Jeff Kanata, that's spelled with two N's and one T, and I am joined, as always, by my friend, slash co-host, slash nemesis. The guy who also once got a gold medal for curling, his hair, Christian Spencer. Hey, 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 everybody. Happy to be here. Um, I was looking at my queue of upcoming games, and we're in it. Like, it's happened. Um... There's maybe a little breath still this week, but not much. And then, holy moly, we're in it. March is stacked, absolutely stacked. Dude, I'm, I got like E3 appointments. It's, it's we're in February. It's it's insanity. E3 appointments before GDC even happens. I know. What oh, crazy? Man. Uh, we got a we got an interesting. Week. It's a, kind of a slow news week, but there's definitely a lot of games to talk about, and we got we got great stuff to tell you about, and we have an awesome guest to do it with. You know that DLC is always your downloadable Kanata and your downloadable Christian, but this week, oh man, I'm so excited because DLC stands for Dragons Lift the Completionist, because <laughs> we have that one video gamer, the completionist himself, Gerard Dragon Rider Khalil. Thanks for coming to the show, Gerard. Guys, thank you for thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm a big fan of what you do. Your uh, your YouTube channel is always a lot of fun, and we got uh, actually a, a number of people that that suggested we reach out to you and bring you on the show. So I'm so glad it worked out. Oh, that's so exciting. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really cool. Uh, all right, uh, let's get into the show and start the way we always do with story of the week. Story of the week. It's the story of the week. Story of the Week is the part of the show where we make our case for the most important stories that happened in the world of video games this week. And you can always submit stories for our consideration by using our subreddit. That is 5x5dlc.reddit.com. Some cool folks hanging out there talking about the show, talking about video games in general. Encourage you to stop by. Uh, Gerard, you are our guest, so you get first pick of stories. What would you consider to be your story of the week? Let's talk about the Dice Awards. Yeah, the Dice Awards, uh, they happened this week, and they, I think on the spectrum of video game awards, it's on the more prestigious side. These are awards given out by the industry to the industry, so it, it 
tends not to be as much of a popularity contest in my opinion. It tends to be uh, respected uh, awards inside the the actual uh, artists from the artist to the artist. And Nintendo swept. Nintendo cleaned up. It was crazy. Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild won game of the year, won outstanding achievement in art direction, outstanding achievement in game design, and uh, several other awards, I think, too. But that wasn't the end of Nintendo's winning. They won uh, Mario Kart 8, won racing game of the year. Um, Snipper Clips actually won some awards, including Family Game of the Year and the Dice Sprite Award. Um, what else we got here? We got some some wins from Player Unknown's Battleground for outstanding achievement in online gameplay. Uh, Mario Plus Rabbids Kingdom Battle won Strategy Simulation Game of the Year. Fighting Game of the Year was Injustice Two, and my personal favorite, uh, Lone Echo, which was my game of the year last year, won two awards: Immersive Reality Technical Achievement and Immersive Reality Game of the Year, which I think is very deserved. Um, Gerard, what is your takeaway from the Game Awards? I think the best part about the Game Awards is I think you said it best. It's reflective of what the industry thinks of itself, and I'm so glad that everyone who's won all of these great uh, nominations reflects the great work that's been put in. Uh, There's maybe one or two on here that I would disagree with, but for the most part, I'm pretty happy with everyone who won something because, you know, uh, Horizon Zero Dawn, Cuphead, even Snipperclips, these are all great games that deserved their limelight in the sun, and they really did well here at the dice awards i'm i'm very excited for them yeah i am too i, I think it, it, it reflects a, a pretty uh strong year that we had in 2017 um a few other notable awards the action game of the year was uh player unknown's battlegrounds the uh, uh outstanding achievement in story is horizon zero dawn which was the dlc game of the year last year and um outstanding achievement in character goes to Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice, which I think is very deserving as well. Uh, Christian, did you have any reaction to the... I know you're not a big fan of awards in general, but uh, are the DICE Awards, uh, I don't know, worth worth your time? Yeah, I think in terms of the run of these types of awards, I would say the DICE Awards uh, are high on the list of, of you know, like you, like you mentioned, it's the industry recognizing the industry and, and people that you know, have been through it, <laughs> recognizing what it, what, uh, what's been done in the past year. I wanted to point out handheld game of the year, Metroid Samus returns, which I thought was an excellent, excellent game. And, and many people, <clears throat> Jeff, uh, maybe overlooked it cause they didn't want to get their 3ds out. Um, <laughs> where, where, where even is it? That's the question. <laughs> uh, it did my house and it's good. I, I, thank you for letting me borrow it. Um, I do wonder if we're going to get to a point where mobile game of the year and handheld game of the year, and switch game of the year and you know like at what point do all yeah. of those awards kind of conflate but stations uh, without a difference yeah yeah but that was more nintendo mobile game of the year was fire emblem heroes which has i think made them the most money of any of their games and um of those mobile games i should say and then handheld another you know samus returns it was the 2017 was very much the year of nintendo and it looks like they're not really slowing down this year. I think Labo could do well for them next year in terms of awards for family game. Certainly um, for innovation. Innovation, immersive reality, even though it's not virtual reality. I wonder if we could get um, included in that where this year it was Lone Echo, one of your faves. Yeah. Um, so, it was, you know, looking back at this list was just like, oh, yeah, there were a bunch of great games that came out last year. And then games like Injustice 2, 
which I can talk about a little bit later, you know, it's it's a game that's still paying dividends, you know, to this day in terms of new content coming out. And uh, what a year, 2017, the year that keeps giving. As much as Nintendo really uh, dominates this list, uh, there's no Super Mario Odyssey anywhere on it. Sound design. Oh, that's true. Sound design, because the... That's all uh, very, very well done. We just got this uh, show blocked for uh, sound copyright, (laughs) Jeff. Uh, Gerard, did you give out a, a game of the year in 2017? Did you have a favorite? I did. My favorite was, in fact, Super Mario Odyssey. I thought that Mario oh, Odyssey was. was... I don't know. I'm I'm more of a platformer guy, and even though I love Zelda and Mario the same, I thought that there was, there was just this polish and this fun vibe and life to Mario Odyssey that I was kind of missing from Zelda. Zelda was very open and and kind of empty and you were supposed to find the adventure yourself. Whereas Mario Odyssey felt a lot more like, you know, we're going to go in and save the day. And in that good old kind of Nintendo Disney Mario fashion. And it just felt good. It felt good to have a new Mario platformer that was very focused. I think the last one we saw in this regard was super Mario galaxy two. And so it was kind of a great return to form for Nintendo and Mario. I agree. I, I put the edge to Mario in my personal list as well, but I, I certainly think that Breath of the Wild is going to have the the longer reach in terms of um, you know games that impact the industry. I think Breath of the Wild is really going to change how people make open world games, and I think the fact that we're seeing all these Game of the Year awards continue for Breath of the Wild. I think is an accurate representation of its place in the pantheon in history. I think people are going to look back on 2017 as the year of breath of the wild. And, uh, and I, in in that sense, I think that um, it being the game that tends to win all these awards is, is probably pretty accurate. It just needs an ad a battle Royale mode this year. And it will, it will be. (laughs) Yeah. I was about to say that, but I just hope that in 2018 and 2019, we don't see a sudden emerge of, Breath of the Wild clones out there that are trying to be the Fortnite to Battle Royale kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I wonder if that's even uh, possible. I, I mean, I guess, I guess it could be, I guess there could be a lot of, as, as much as there are Zelda likes, uh, you know, there could be Breath of the Wild. No, likes. Now I want to see Fortnite add a Breath of the Wild. Mode. <laughs> Just Fortnite keeps doing it. Yeah. It's always yeah, Fortnite. It. And then eventually it goes all the way around and Fortnite unveils their Fortnite mode where it's, <laughs> yeah. It's, Fortnite is the tofu of video games, guys. <laughs> now you can play Fortnite in Fortnite. <laughs> it tastes just like chicken. Uh, dinners that is. Hey, Um, all right, Christian, what is your, uh, what is your story of the week? Man, that was a real good joke you ruined by hayoing your own joke, Jeff. That was a that's real what, nice button. That's how I do. Okay, good. Um, I do. <laughs> uh, this we talked about it uh, last when we saw the news, Jeff. You yelled it to me through an, an open window, so I, I, I think it might be both of our stories of the week. But Burnout Paradise, the remaster, it's official. We talked about the rumor on this show months ago, and now it is official. And soon. And I, and soon, and I am officially old, where it's like a decade ago, Burnout Paradise, and I was just like, oh, crap. Yeah. <laughs> it was 10 years ago. Um, but it's 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 like two weeks away, uh, 4K on the One X and PS4 Pro, PC version TBD, uh, 40 bucks, it looks like. They've bumped the resolution. Uh, I think it's 4K, 60 frames per second on the 
um, the, the big boy versions of the consoles and then natively in 1080p in their OG originals. And it's everything that's been in the game. Um, the island, all of the DLC cars. The one thing it doesn't have is, uh, you wrote it down, I'm sure, Time Savers Pack. It was like the, hey, just unlock everything for me thing. I, I think that's the only thing not included uh, in this bundle. But what a game. And, I hope it's a good remaster. And no Switch version. Correct. No Switch. Yeah, that's a bummer. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, man, I I love Burnout Paradise. I look back on it with a lot of fondness. And I'm glad that this is happening. I'm I'm very curious as to how remastered-y it has, has become because... Um, I don't think it's kind of hard to tell in that trailer how di- they don't do the, the thing you're supposed to do in the remastered trailer, which is like side by side with the old one, you know, it was like womp, 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 wah, and then like every dubstep drop, it wipes one way or yeah. the other to show you. You got to do that. You got to tell me what, how much cooler this one is because uh, short of, you know, Shadow of the Colossus remake, oh you God. know, which is like, oh, obviously gobsmack boom. Uh, these remasters is like, oh, that's kind of how I remembered it looking, but obviously it yeah. wasn't. Uh, Gerard, were you a Burnout Paradise guy? I was. I was. I was. The thing is, is that Burnout Paradise was one of those games where I ironically got burnt out on it. <laughs> was it, was it I, Paradise, I though? So it. <laughs> you know, in the beginning, it definitely was. But I think as I started going down the completionist rabbit hole, I just kind of lost myself and I put it down and never returned to it. So I'm I'm very stoked about the remaster of this game. But to go on to that topic, since... Uh, I'm newer to this. Um, what are your guys' thoughts on the recent remasterings of everything that's going around with Shadow of the Colossus, Secret of Mana, things like that? Well, boy, those are two ends of a very wide spectrum, right? <laughs> right, um, yeah. It, I think Chris and I are both huge fans of what they did with Shadow of the Colossus remake because it is so lovingly done and and it really makes this game so gorgeous. And I think also retains a level of um, reverence to the game that it was when it was released, but somehow still makes it very, um, very current and modern feeling. I actually posited on this show that there are very few games that actually that's possible with like shadow of the Colossus in, is in very rarefied air with regard to games that you could even do that too, because so few games could feel fresh and modern even if you don't mess with any of their mechanics, like, you know, Shadow of the Colossus was so ahead of its time in so many ways that it, it feels contemporary if you just make it look contemporary. Uh, and then Secret of Mana, of course, is like, what? They changed lots of stuff. I haven't played the remake, but from reading about it, they changed lots of stuff. And it sounds like uh, just kind of ruined a, a classic. So uh, I guess it's all in the execution from my perspective. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it is. It, it's it's the execution, and then um, I tend to think polygonal games benefit a little more from a remastered approach because I think pixel art has aged really well. Um, where I look back at like Resident Evil and the remake that was done of that in the GameCube era, and then since built upon um, ad nauseum the way Capcom does with future versions of it, I think really made a definitive version of that game. Whereas I don't know if I'd want what would a remastered version of Super Mario World be? I, you know, I feel like that pixel art holds up so well and it's so beautiful today that I think the well, go ahead could look like it could look like. Um... Uh, Rain, the Rayman game. What was the last Rayman game? Oh, yeah, you know, Legends you, or any of, yeah, yeah. any of them. You could look like that. I mean, I don't think I would, or, you know, like Cuphead or something along those. It could look like a, a real yeah. animated movie yeah. in a sense. Yeah, that's interesting. Theoretically. 
Yeah, I don't know if I'd like that or not. I guess I'd want to see that because, yeah, part of me is like, oh, that would be great. But then I think back to all the Sonic games we got over the years. And the first one that connected with me was Mania, which was a, a demake. <laughs> you know, it was like, here's here's the graphics, you know, and love. But I think it, it matters whether it's handled with care um, and time and effort was put into it or if it just seems like, hey, get this thing out the door. Because I've certainly enjoyed a lot of remasters. I mean, even quick ones. I really enjoyed I thought The Last of Us was excellent when it came to ps4 i think the uncharted collection was done really well the master chief collection on xbox one was could have been so great but i think they really botched that unfortunately so i think i kind of take a case-by-case approach to it but i'm open to the idea because burnout paradise is 10 years old and so you know kids that are playing games today have never played it and if it's a good remaster of one of the best racing games of all time that a new generation gets to play i'm all for that right like imagine if we could go back in time and watch jordan take off from the free throw line again right come on we'd all be there we'd buy tickets for that yeah we have video for that that's it's no problem what if it was remastered though in vr like you were there (laughs) widescreen video uh how do you feel about it gerard what's your position so i recently just completed I'm almost done with Secret of Mana. I went through Shadow of the Colossus. And here's the thing about me and Shadow of the Colossus. Shadow of the Colossus, for someone, when I first played it, I was... Oh, man, it was about seven years ago. So I was... I'm playing on the PS3 for the first time. And I did not like it. I was struggling to ingest the game for what it was. But then I played the remaster, and I fell in love with it. Hmm. And I think... And I I can't really put my finger on it, but I think a lot of it had to do with, at the time, one, I didn't know how to play the game as well as I do now. Uh, Because it's, it doesn't really have the, uh, I guess back in the day, the hold your hand aspect that we have now in terms of playing games. Especially because that came on the PlayStation 2. And it was very vague on how things uh, kind of progressed and they did that with the remaster on the ps3 they just kind of or the port rather they just kind of left it as it was and then i played the remaster and they added the updated controls with a mm-hmm. subtle tutorial and the graphics were just so incredible in the music and it, it felt like i was playing it for the first time and i i fell in love with it whereas when i played secret of mana I was trying my best to not throw up as I, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, as someone who loves secret of mana, I have had a love hate relationship with this remake and it does a lot, right? It does a lot wrong. And I, when I hear burnout paradise coming, I'm excited for it. I know it's going to be good, but the thing that has had me thinking about all these remakes is the price point. Hmm. Because at one point, these games were $60, $50, whenever the MSRP was the time. But, you know, I, I look at Secret of Mana and I go, I paid $40 for the experience and it did not feel like $40. Hmm. And when I, But when I played Shadow of the Colossus, I said, this is absolutely worth more than $40. So right. I, I, I think, think there's a certain finesse that, and love and care, like you said, um, earlier was that if we if the companies take the time to make that investment then we as the audience will enjoy that investment but if it's something quick it's going to be hard for us to really see where they're going with it and sometimes these remakes just feel like quick cash grabs and not a Mm. full 
fleshed out experience that we all have been dying for. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you a, a, a different question on a, on a topic you sort of, you, you brought up just briefly in, in setting up this question. Sure. Uh, it's something I'm curious about because you are the completionist, you know, your, your whole uh, persona online is about completing the games fully. Right. Mm-hmm. It is, is that, does that ever feel like shackles to you? And, and does it ever harm your enjoyment of a game that if you had played a game a little less rigorously, a little less stringently, you know, requiring yourself to do less of the game that you would actually enjoy it more? Absolutely. There are definitely, (laughs) (laughs) there's definitely weeks of time where I am just kind of stuck in the zone of, I have to do nothing else but complete this game and everything becomes unimportant. I walk away from my girlfriend, walk away from my family, from my employees and my business. And I just sit in my room in my office and I power through completing these games. And in some aspects, I love it because I can instantly understand what makes it so great. In other aspects, all I do is stare at this evil task that I can't <laughs> conquer. Um, Hyrule Warriors, for instance, uh, for the Wii U, I loved that game, retrospectively thinking about it. At the time that I played it, I wanted to murder someone <laughs> because I had spent 250 hours of my life trying to max out all the characters and unlock oh, all the maps and beat everything on the hardest setting and find everything there was. And Nintendo gave me the game three weeks before it came out. So I actually had a video on launch day, which is pretty crazy for how big that game is. And then they added more DLC literally the day of. So <laughs> there are definitely moments <laughs> where the shackles have never felt more real. Like like that uh, Godfather quote, I, I tried to get out and they pulled me back in. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. DLC. Amazing. Uh, all right, I was just very curious about that, and I'm, I'm I appreciate you giving me some insight. Um, <laughs> my story of the week, uh, I think, probably would have been Burnout Paradise because I'm super excited about that. But I want to talk a little bit about this Sonic the Hedgehog movie, which we got confirmation. Now, this has been swirling around for a little while now as different production companies and deals and and creators have been attached, and it fell through. And now it looks like it's really happening. Not only is it really happening. It has a release date. The Sonic the Hedgehog movie is set to release November 15th of 2019, so over a year away. But that's the day they've, they've uh, put their flag in the, in the sand there. And we don't really know too much about it. We know that it is going to be a co-production between Sega and Paramount Pictures and that it will be a combination of of live action and CGI animation. Yes. Just like you wanted. They got your letters, oh, Christian. I kept pretending them versions of the Chipmunks live action movies, but with mm. just Sonic heads, you know, gift on there. And it worked, yeah. apparently. So I'm excited. Well, it sounds like you're not into this idea. Uh, I... I hope I'm wrong, but yes, no, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not into this. What I've heard of it, I'm not super excited, but I hope I'm wrong. I hope it's Sonic Mania spin dashes its way into my heart because <laughs> I am, I'm, a, I'm cautiously, no, I'm not even cautiously optimistic. I, I'm, res- I, my feelings, I'm very reserved about this. I don't, I haven't liked much of the animated Sonic. I know some people love some of the cartoons, but it is just not, for, has not been for me. So your your reservations aren't so much about 
the live actioniness of it. It's more about the character itself doesn't. I tend mean, to kind work of the live actiony from- of it too. <laughs> I don't know. Like, yeah, I look back at like <laughs> Smurfs, Alvin Chipmunks. Um, I guess Who Framed Roger Rabbit was was great, right? Um, yeah, this could be the Who, who Framed Roger Rabbit of okay, video games. You sold me on it. I'm on board. <laughs> Gerard, we we have ourselves a Mario movie coming, and now this Sonic the Hedgehog movie coming. Are you excited about these these animated, you know, these mascots of old uh, getting their own animated films? I am, and I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm right in the center. I don't know what I would do if Mario spoke full sentences. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like it yeah. just, it just we, we, make sense. we we we. We were talking about that a few weeks ago, and I and I said he's like, "It's me, Mario. How you guys doing? I'm uh, which one?" And, like, <laughs> and with I mean Sonic, it makes sense. There's the cartoon. There's the show. The the Sonic Boom animated show. There's all the cutscenes over the years and the scripts and the games. Sonic, for as all of his faults he's had over the years, has had several narratives where he is talking and you know hanging out with Tails and whoa, Knuckles, my friend. <laughs> But now they actually have to make a good movie out of this whole presentation of this character. And I hope it's good. I'm, I'm with Christian on this one. I'm, I'm, I'm excited, but I'm very calm about it. Do you, it, can either of you guys see a, uh, a loose plot or idea for this movie that would work, would, would make you go, oh, yeah, now I'm in? Can you imagine like your your premise for the Sonic movie that that's cool? I yes, I'll go first. I think it needs to go um, very anime, and I think you could have a really fun anime movie with Doctor Robotnik uh, and and make him menacing, you know, and and don't have this be G, maybe give PG, maybe PG thirteen, and really play up the action and the speed with some of that classic anime holds and fast action scenes that are you know Sonic's whipping around and trying to go through this. I, I almost picture like imagine Sonic running around through a neon futuristic dark oppressive city like really really get into it you know like not akira like we're not like not that dark uh but like an, an interesting i hate to say mature because i don't want i don't want this to be the gritty reboot of sonic but like do something interesting with the character and let him play and have fun and i think that would get me more excited than what i'm picturing here where it's Dr. Robotnik finds a way to turn himself into a real boy and somehow Sonic gets sucked into the void. And now we have like, um, I don't know who would be playing him, who would play Dr. Robotnik running around uh, the human version of, but you know, some human version of him running around and then cartoon Sonic chasing him through the streets as a taxi zooms overhead. And he's like, Whoa, that's a crazy taxi, you know, or whatever other. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely can imagine a, a version when I hear, you know, combination of live action and animated. Uh, I worry that it's like kids are playing a video game and then the characters leap out of the screen and come to life. You know, that's that's one of those ones where I'm like, ooh, that's hard to pull off and not be terrible. Um, but I, I agree with you. Like the the structure is there. The world is there to have a fun, cool, Incredibles style adventure. You know, I think there there's a 
a fun animated adventure with those bad guys and the combination of, you know, technology and speed and the way that an action sequence can be done in CG in these animated movies. Now, I think I could, I think there's a version that's good. I just don't know how the yeah, live think, action. Before we move on, I think now. we skipped somebody else giving their take of the movie. I was trying to give him an out. <laughs> <laughs> I went first. I'm not going to let that. We're going to complete this conversation. <laughs> the I have a really dumb idea that I think that everyone's going to hate, but I'll say it anyways. <laughs> I would love to see this film more to be like a Pixar film where we have a young hedgehog. We have a young Robotnik. Mm. You know, I'd love to see Robot in his early 20s working at a factory and trying to, like, become this mad scientist and kind of have this weird dynamic where Sonic and Robotnik actually used to be friends or there used to be a thing where they would complement each other so that when this betrayal happens, we have these characters going this arc of a journey where it's justified that they're versus each other and their world is kind of crumbling in in the midst of it. And, you know, kind of kind of like a good Pixar kind of vibe. But, however, this is live action and animation. So my idea is just really dumb in general. But that's something I'd like to see. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Young. <laughs> it's uh, the Muppet Babies of, yeah. <laughs> of Sonic. <laughs> Very cool. Well... Here's hoping that these movies are all good. I, I want to love them regardless. I just, it's a, it's a tough it's not, thing. It's not easy to do. I think making a good movie is not easy to do. And then making a great video game movie has proven extremely difficult to do. And even Ratchet and Clank, which I think has a been a very funny narrative based video game action platformer game over the years. It's movie was not great. And they used cutscenes from the movie in the game that was way better than the movie. So like, Clearly, it's something – there's a difficulty in terms of translating these properties you interact with into something you just stare at and, and you lose that engagement. But I mean we got an incredible Lego movie. We got an awesome Lego Batman movie. You know, we the Ninjago movie wasn't even terrible. Like it's, uh, it's possible. I've watched it more than you. It's uh, it's not great. <laughs> um, you know what but else is hard? Possible. Yeah, what? go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. transition to the yeah, Wait, transitions are hard? <laughs> yeah, transitions are hard. It's also hard to uh, find a watch <laughs> that's that's uh, affordable and still awesome. But that's been solved now by our sponsor, Movement. Movement watches, MVMT watches. I have uh, I mentioned this on a previous episode. I've become a watch guy. I never thought yeah. I would be a watch guy. I love wearing watches. I like having stylish watches. Watches, little details in your fashion are... I think they go a long, long way and they make you feel cool. They, uh, they accent what you're wearing. Well, the problem is you can spend a friggin' fortune for watches, really nice looking watch. If you don't want something that looks cheap and crappy, then you tend to spend a lot of money, but that's where movement watches come in because the whole concept of movement was that nice watches should not break the bank. Their goal was to create a way for customers to think about fashion, but not have to worry about spending too much to make it out of their reach. And they have over a million watches sold to customers in 160, over 160 countries around the world. Movement watches 
are now the fastest growing watch company. And the reason for that is the watches are gorgeous. They're really beautiful. There's so many different styles. I got one and uh, I love it. Mine's all black. I showed you Christian, my, I wore it into where we're working now. Um, One day it was pretty, you'd like it, right? It's pretty nice. Yeah. And as someone who isn't a watch person, another person in the office who was immediately noticed it and was like, Oh, where did you get that? And then you guys had a little watch nerd off and it was real cute. Yeah. Yeah. We're watch bros. Um, but I, I really like the movement watch that I have. It's, it's all black. It's really slick. It's really stylish. It looks really high end. It complements what I wear and it's comfortable. It's really comfortable. And I know that's a weird thing to say about a watch, but I love that about it, that it, it fits me right. And it's like weighted very nicely. It's just a very nice watch and you can buy them as gifts. You can buy them for free. And these are, these are watches that are much more affordable than what you're going to find for a comparable, comparable level of quality anywhere else. Plus we're going to give you 15% off just because you listen to DLC. If you go to movement.com slash DLC, that's MVMT.com slash DLC. You can get 15% off plus free shipping and free returns. If you, if for any reason that you find that you don't want the watch free returns, all you got to do is go to MVMT.com slash DLC and join the movement. Time to talk about the games on our playlists, the games that we're playing right now. Gerard, what is on your playlist? Uh, I kind of talked about it a little bit earlier, but I am currently playing The Secret of Mana Remake on the PS4 and PC and Vita. And I just finished up playing Shadow of the Colossus Remake, or Remaster rather. Remake, Remaster, that word is so tossed around nonchalant, I never know which one's the right one to say. I feel like this one is the remake, right? Because uh, they made it anew. They didn't use the assets from the original game. But the previous one, the PS3 one, was the remaster. Yeah, so this is a remake. Um, Yeah, what else have I been playing? I've been playing a lot of Monster Hunter. Monster (laughs) Hunter World has been eating away at my my personal life when I'm not playing games professionally, if you will. Um, And a lot of Dark Souls 3. I just just released a video on Dark Souls 3 a couple days ago, and um man what a what a fantastic and tragic game that game is uh, if you're oh. not yeah i don't know if you guys are huge dark souls fans but uh man what I, a game <laughs> i'm dark souls curious and i've i've, I've bloodborne i'm curious where you stand on the dark souls as a series especially with that remaster remake remaster coming out again um it seems like the series has kind of had a tragic arc to it it really has i really think that in my opinion i think the best the best form of of the soul series if you will is bloodborne i think bloodborne gets it right uh i love how fast it is i love how patient you have to be i love the different weapons it's very offensive based whereas uh dark souls 1 and 2 is a little bit more slow a little bit more kind of taking your time dealing with certain enemies and dark souls 3 kind of takes the best of both worlds combines what what they learned from bloodborne combines what the legacy is within the dark souls games before it um and so I think in terms of the the best in the series, I really believe that Dark Souls 3 is my favorite. I know that's kind of an unpopular opinion. I think everyone, to my understanding, everyone really loves the first one a lot. And they kind of see the second one as the not so great one with the third one kind of being somewhere in the middle. Um, but I I don't know what that project was that, that Bandai Namco teased at, uh, at the Game Awards last year in 2017. But 
if it's another Souls game or another Souls type game, like maybe Bloodborne Two or something else, I would, I would be very excited. I think that um, we've gotten used to games just kind of like holding our hands the whole time in terms of automatically playing games. I know they they do that a lot in Nintendo titles where. If you fail one or two times, there's a little box that pops up that says, would you like us to play the game for you? Whereas <laughs> <laughs> whereas with uh, with the Dark Souls series, it's the exact opposite. It's just kind of like, have fun. By the way, there's massive, ugly monsters about to eat you. Good luck. I want a game right. that does the opposite, where it's like, you die a whole bunch of times, and it's like, congratulations, now your A button doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> just piling on yeah, good luck jerk go ahead and trade I this you were back say, in. Like, yeah here's your receipt maybe you can still return this <laughs> see you at gamestop <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's great uh let's let's talk a little bit about some of the other games you mentioned though um what is it about monster were you a monster hunter fan before world or has world been the game that brought you into the monster hunter universe so i've been playing monster hunter since monster hunter ultimate for the wii u and i that game to me was very divisive because that was the first one i played and i i had a love-hate relationship with some of the mechanics i didn't like the swimming uh i didn't feel like the controls were as as clean as they could be and um i feel like as they started making more and more 3ds titles the game just got more refined and better and better and uh i think i i feel that monster hunter world is the most accessible for people who've never played monster hunter a lot of the difficulties that come in playing monster hunter are have been so streamlined that if you've if you've never played a monster hunter game before then you're going to be just fine and i think that's the best thing about monster hunter world is uh, whether you're a hardcore Monster Hunter fan or someone who's afraid of the series, it's a great time to start playing the game. I completely agree. I, I was not a Monster Hunter fan. I played it briefly on 3DS. Um, I just it just it felt a little obtuse to me. I didn't I didn't grok it, and I I just didn't want to play it on a handheld. I was not loving how it looked. It just didn't grab me. But man, World changed all of that, and it really does welcome new players in. Uh, in a, in a really accessible way. There are still those levels of, of depth and complexity that the series is known for, but it, it doesn't feel oppressively deep and it doesn't feel oppressively complex. It just, it, it feels like you can wade in at your own pace and there's enough, the, just the, um, um, scout flies alone make the game feel so oh nice. Like it doesn't, so it nice. doesn't feel like handheld holding, but it, it really is, but it doesn't, it feels more like this cool ability that you have rather than even, even in something like Batman or, or something, you know, where you have your senses, it, it does it more elegantly than even those games do it. In my opinion. I agree wholeheartedly. I think one of the, you, you know, that this game is really, is really something special when you log on to play on, on your PS4 or your Xbox One and all 30 or 40 of your closest friends are all playing together and <laughs> one of them's always looking for one more and you can just jump in and play for a few hours and then walk away and, and totally be fine. And I think that's that that to me was the was the coolest thing about really jumping in into Monster Hunter, Monster Hunter World. You said you say that, and the way you said that was uh, whether you're playing on PlayStation or Xbox. But the truth is, if you're like me and you got the Xbox version, all your friends are doing that over on the PlayStation. (laughs) (laughs) 
And you're like, anybody, guys? I got the Xbox One version. No? Okay. Well, there have to be people playing on Xbox. You're just not people you're friends with because I think it was number two on last month's NPDs on Xbox as well. So it yeah. sold on both consoles, even with you know PUBG dominating and Xbox giving out free copies of PUBG. Monster Hunter World still went gangbusters on both consoles. It's just not my friends. <laughs> right. It's not, you, you just have bad friends. Yeah. I well, wanted I mean, that HDR, fair. man. I wanted that nice, sweet... I got that Xbox One X. I want to play everything on it now. I don't want to... So- the PlayStation Pro, because you have a Pro also, and also people have said this on our subreddit, yes. which to be fair, we talked about way back when, when the firmware came that yes, regular OG PlayStations do HDR, yes. Xbox One S's also do HDR. Correct. Um, oftentimes when we're talking about tech specs, we're not saying this is the tech spec of the device. We're talking about why Jeff is playing on a particular device right. um, because of his current setup. That being okay. said, does Monster Hunter World not support HDR on PS4 Pro? Christian, you know the answer to this uh, is that my PlayStation 4 Pro <laughs> goes through my PlayStation VR, which means in order to get HDR on my television, I'd have to disconnect my PlayStation VR. So the only way, way I get HDR when I play is with my Xbox One X. I did know the answer to that, but I wanted you to say it out loud to our listeners just in case yeah. other people have not heard <laughs> it. Yes, HDR is... And there is a new version of PlayStation VR that doesn't require you to do that, but I ain't buying a new PlayStation VR just to get a new stupid pass-through box. Yes. So to be fair, oftentimes when we are talking about what a game, our experiences with the game, it's not necessarily a back-of-the-box list of what the game has. It is what Jeff's setup is and where his OLED TV is. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That's right. It's all about me. No, I, I totally get it. But I just wanted to clarify, yes. Anyway... We're talking about Gerard's playlist. <laughs> so um, so you're loving Monster Hunter. I love Monster Hunter. It's so fun. It, it, The grind, it is a very grindy game that kind of doesn't feel grindy. It just feels like there's always more stuff to be doing. And always that the doing of that stuff is always what I want to be doing. So it doesn't feel like, oh, I got to go back and kill three more of these in order to get that. It's like, oh, I, I get to kill three more of those and I'll get that. (laughs) Yeah. There's a certain, I'm, you know, monster hunter, hunter ranks aren't new to monster hunter, obviously, but for people starting out, I think there is something special about knowing that uh, even if you have a friend who's, you know, rank 50 or 60 and you're rank six and you're struggling with a monster, that doesn't make the monster ultimately easier. It just means that that care, that person has, better gear and has 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 had a lot of experience hunting different monsters but you know when you go fight a rathian it's still going to be a rathian nothing's changed from this fight and people immediately uh you know in in like an rpg setting or an action rpg setting they assume oh the higher the ranking the higher and more powerful your character is and that is kind of the case of monster hunter but at the end of the day not really a monster's a monster and that's the most fun thing about it is you're always going to have an epic fight with the monster every round. Do you have a weapon that you prefer that you specialize in? I've been loving the switch axe. It, mm. it, it feels like uh, I, it was the, I was the first weapon I chose to play and out of our, out of my group of friends. Cause my girlfriend plays great sword and uh, uh, my other friend plays, um, not, I don't I forget what it's called. It's like they specialize in insects 
Um, yeah, the, the insect lance or whatever yeah, it's called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then my other friend is is the horn player, and so we had this weird group. And uh, I was like, oh, I'll, I'll try the switch axe, and uh, I was fighting one of the first few monsters, and I comboed in a way where I stuck the switch axe into the monster's face, and it like, cued this kind of like action scene where I flung around and jumped on its head and I was riding it and like holding the sword in its cheek and it was like <laughs> blowing up with or the axe and it was like pulsing with this with this special move and I was like I don't know what I'm doing but man like this looks and feels really cool <laughs> and since then I've just been like that experience I try and have it every single time when I'm hunting a monster because it feels so cool to just kind of go full on anime and jump in the sky and suddenly you're you know, slamming down with this big axe. It's really fun. Yeah. Meanwhile, that, so cool. that monster was just trying to collect some mango fruit for its children back at the nest, just living a peaceful. <laughs> Not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah. Jumping on the back of a monster is like the coolest thing in that game. It's like, Oh yeah, I'm awesome. Um, let's talk a little bit. I know you mentioned secret of man already, uh, but you also said you have a love hate relationship with the remake or remaster. We should say remake. I don't know. It's, it's blurry. The line. Um, do you think, I mean, the secret of mana is on the SNES classic. Do you think if somebody wants to play that game, they should just play that version or is there any reason at all to, to buy this one? If you've never played secret of mana before and you are curious about how the game was and you want to play it, play the new version of it. Uh, hmm. I, hmm. I recommend it because, uh, you're going to hate some of the, the more modern stuff, things like the voice acting and, and the music kind of sounding off. But from a gameplay standpoint, you're going to enjoy the game. I think that the quality of life has been improved uh, pretty evenly with this re- with this new version. Um, if you are someone who grew up loving the original and you played it all the time and it was one of your favorite games like I have, you're going to feel very, very conflicted because... The quality of life stuff is awesome. They make it so you can carry more items now. Um, you can hotkey uh, certain actions or spells on L1 and R1, which is great. So you don't have to open up the, the ring menu. Um, but other than that, the voice acting kind of gets tedious. Not every soundtrack sounds as great as it should be. Uh, they did have the option to change back to the original. So if you're not having a good time with that, you can do that. If you're not liking the voice acting, you can turn it off, which is nice. Um, but I, it, it lost a little bit of its charm. If this game had come out in 2006, it would be revolutionary. Uh, but in 2018, it looks like a game that came out in 2006, and it just does not resonate mm. well. It looks like a WiiWare game that you got on your Nintendo Wii. And yeah. uh, the gameplay aspect of it is still good, though. I think that it did a great job in, in you know, because in the Super Nintendo, you can only attack in four directions, right? Up, down, left, and right. Uh, because it's 3D, you can attack in all directions. And so it it kind of lends the gameplay to be a little more in-depth than you're traditionally used to. Um, but if you love the game, then it's going to be very easy for you to play. I saw a lot of comments on, on reviews and in and, and the media around it saying that the game was hard. And I, I disagree. It's still that the difficulty is the exact same from when you were a kid. I think people just didn't remember how it was to play the original, especially the fact that the SNES Classic exists, so you can play it right now if you want. Um, but 
yeah, it, it for me, I'm I'm super conflicted because I loved the original to pieces. It's one of my all time favorite games. It's one of the games that uh, when I first started my career on YouTube was one of my most popular videos. And so I have a very uh, special connection with this game. And as I've been playing the remake, I have been struggling to decide where I what I feel because I find a lot of again, I find a lot of new stuff that I love. But there's a lot of bad in here that's going to offset a lot of people. I think that's interesting, especially to hear you say it, because having not played the current version of it, um, but playing it back in the day and uh, diving in a little on my SNES Classic, is it does seem like the online discussion about the game is divided almost evenly between people who love the original game saying they ruined one of the best RPGs of all time, and then people that are new to the franchise going, this game's great. Why is everybody griefing on this game? And and like my takeaway from that is almost the idea that the underlying game is incredible. So if you've never experienced it, it m- maybe is the best way to do it, like you said, because of the quality of life things um, and the way we're used to playing games. But I also think it's just a testament to how great of a game and story and basic mechanics that that game had, what, 20, 20 years ago, 22 years ago, whenever it first came out. Um, Just incredible. Cool. Uh, Christian, what about you? What's on your playlist? I know you've been playing a lot of stuff this week. A lot of stuff. I will start uh, at a game that I promised to talk about again in depth after I finished it. I have finished A-Sides Only of Celeste. I played it on Nintendo Switch. It took me 11 plus hours. I died over 2,400 times. And I only collected 42 strawberries, which... Um, it doesn't were- seem like good ROI for strawberries. It's not, it's not, uh, strawberries are just for fun though, just for the sport of collecting them. I was playing this with two friends that were playing at the same time as me. Um, I died a thousand more times than them. And suddenly I I thought I was the good gamer of the group. I'm, I'm apparently I'm not. Um, but what uh, this, this game, and I don't know where or how long my list is of all time favorites. Maybe it's 200 games. Maybe it's 10. I don't know. But Celeste has found a place on my all time favorites list. It is absolutely stunning in how it um, unlocks new mechanics through level design, whereas you as a character, you're not powering up and learning new moves or you know, constantly adding new moves to your repertoire as you progress through the game. Instead, things in the environment change and the way you interact with them and the way the game does its version of you know, the idea that Mario one, one is the best game design level design ever in terms of showing a player how to play the game without telling them like push X to mourn. It just unlocks in front of you as, as you experiment. And I think Celeste does all of that stuff so well. Also where you're sitting at a screen and you take in what's there and you just mourn naturally. You just mourn. Well, that too. Yes. After you die <laughs> 2,400 times, you certainly mourn naturally. Um, and, but the way the levels are designed and the way you progress through them and learn what to do and trial and error in terms of figuring things out without it ever being punishing or, um, unfair in its difficulty. And then on top of that, the score is just phenomenal. Um, it's great to listen to as just a soundtrack alone. And, but the way it's managed to manages to loop and as you die 2,400 times, or as I should say, I died 2,400 times, it doesn't feel repetitive. It keeps you in the moment. And then I don't want to say what it is, but there are Easter eggs uh, that involve the score at various parts in the game that were mind blowing when when I heard them and, and saw them. 
And then it has an interesting story and point on top of all of that. And it's not the most artful story ever told in any video game, but I think the fact that it added a story that is meaningful and insightful in terms of anxiety and um, mental health in a game that is a precision platformer just adds another layer to a game that is already exquisite. And then to have that, it just, it's so good. Uh, play Celeste. So I finished it is what I'm saying. You finished Celeste. Are you going to keep playing it now? There's as like extra stuff to do, right? Yeah, there are B sides and C sides and, and they're harder. I'm going to dabble in, but I'm also, I was very happy to to put it down and walk away and I'll, I'll save the last game that you and I both played together. Um, at, so we can talk about that at the end here. Uh, my list of games, but I was very happy to move from Celeste to that game as a nice, uh, sorbet between courses at, yeah. <laughs> at a restaurant. Palette cleanser. Yeah. Uh, I downloaded Alto's Odyssey, which is the sequel to Alto's Adventure on iOS. It is a one button um, snowboarding game. This time I think you're going through the desert and it is beautiful. Snowboarding in the desert? Desert boarding. <laughs> desert boarding, brah. It is beautiful in its simplicity. Again, just stunning visually. Um, all you do is tap the screen to jump. If you hold it down longer, you will do a backflip. There are tokens to collect, uh, lotus flowers that make you invincible for a little while, jumps you have to navigate through and over, and it's an endless runner in the sense that um, I don't. I guess levels are procedurally generated, and each time you die, you start again at the top, but it's a different level that you're running through. It's not the exact same level again, but you, it, there are... Um, I should say level world or maps. It's not the same map that you're running through, but there are levels that you can progress through the game where you have challenges like break a pot, grind on a rope for 50 feet and do things as you um, extra incentives to go. Or there's also just a Zen mode where you can just play and it's just you and the music and jumping and grinding and, and no fail states. And uh, I think it's five bucks on iOS and it's just a treat the original game. I know won a bunch of awards in this game, is beautiful in all the same way. So if you're looking for something to do on iOS, I've played it both on my iPhone SE and it's fun on there, even though it's the small screen and I've been playing it mostly on my 10 inch iPad pro and it's exquisite Alto's Odyssey. Okay. little breath. Uh, I will do, let's see. Yeah. Okay. Zen pinball or pinball FX three released Jurassic park tables. Uh, I got codes for these. I played it both on switch and iOS. There's Jurassic park pinball, Jurassic World Pinball, Jurassic Park Pinball Mayhem. Great tables. Really great tables. I'm not going to sing, you know, I love this game. I've loved it since day one. I will say that these are fantastic tables. Mayhem is my least favorite, uh, but I really, really enjoy both of these tables. My daughters are super into them as well. I have a video of my five-year-old playing, and she's almost playing it rhythmically. Like, she's bobbing away to the soundtrack and kind of like just just mashing away on the flippers. And I'm very curious to see if it translates to them wanting to play uh, physical pinball, but they, they love my, my five-year-old likes Jurassic park pinball and my two and a half year old likes the Jurassic world pinball because the Raptors pop out. And every time they do my two and a half year old loses her mind, uh, <laughs> which is a real treat. Uh, we'll do one more and then we'll transition to what we both played. I played maybe three hours of metal gear survive I played on the Xbox One. I hate it. I <laughs> absolutely you, hate it. 
And you love Metal Gear. You love Metal Gear. One games. of my all-time favorite franchises. The reason that I am still a gamer today in high school, I remember thinking like, I'm probably done with video games. I am in high school now. And then cut to a few weeks later, I'm waking up early in the morning to play Metal Gear Solid on on PlayStation. I mean, did I say high school? I meant when my uh, older brother. I was. I'm so young. Um, no, I was in, I was in high school. Um, I love that franchise so much. And this is a game that was on my radar, fell off my radar. Uh, I know they ran a beta. I know some people have really enjoyed it. Full disclosure, I'm not huge into the survival type games. Um, so that's probably a part of it. But this game, again, only three hours in. So maybe there's joy to be found if I if I kept plugging away. I streamed my first hour of it. You can find it on Twitch. I think it's archived on my YouTube as well. Um, it opens with a cool cutscene that's like, oh, this is Metal Gear. And then it's like, oh, no, it's just now it's a bad Resident Evil. And then you play and it's like, this sucks. Everything <laughs> astute, astute observation. You play, and then this sucks. <laughs> I mean, it's constant. I guess it's part of it is a survival game, but there's constant, um, you know, menus on your screen showing your hydration and your food. It seems like food is the hardest resource to find right now. But you're cra- you're constantly crafting and in menus, so it's like you're in the middle of a mission and it's like, well, I better go through and collect all these tin cans so I can make a bullet later. And it's just, it's not my metal gear, man. It's, and it has like the sounds of metal gear still at times. So I'm like, I love this franchise, but I hate this game. Um, I also don't think it looks great. I popped in my copy of metal gear five, which I have on PlayStation four. Um, and I, but I was like, I'm just curious if, you know, if my new monitor, whatever, whatever. I thought Metal Gear 5 still looked amazing in my first few hours with um, Metal Gear Survive. I know it's still using the Fox engine, but I thought it was muddy and and not great. But if someone out there loves it, I'd love for you to write in it. And we can certainly read your feedback about why the game is clicking for you. But for me, it is, a, I'm not, I'm not playing any more of it. Like I've already sent it back to Gamefly. I think I've tad over three hours and I'm done. I'm done. That's too bad. Um, but you and I both played Florence on iOS. Uh, Abby Russell on the show last week recommended it very highly. And uh, it is a $3 iOS game that you play for, I don't know, half an hour, maybe, uh, start to finish. It's not, I think even calling it a game is a bit much. It's more of an interactive graphic novel. Um, and it's a lovely little love story. Um I, I thought it was very charming and very fun and very clever the way the interactivity informs what you do. I mean, it's very simplistic. You just tap things or rub things or, you know, use the general iOS type interactions, but very light, very light amount of interactivity. There's no, there's no uh, dexterity needed for any of it. But even having said that, just the fact of having to do certain things, tap certain things, there's a you wake up in the morning a few times and you have to brush your teeth and you just hold your finger on the brush and move it back and forth to brush your teeth. That kind of thing puts you in the experience in a way I thought was very charming. Uh, what did you think of it, Christian? Yeah, I loved Florence. I think it's a great story about relationships and about self and, and you know, loving yourself and being self-aware of who you are and what you want to be. And I, I do think the interactivity of it makes it a more compelling story than if I had just watched the exact same narrative play out, either as a cartoon or, you know, live acted or a motion comic or something. I think putting you in the role of the protagonist and the way that you interact for her or with her through the world allows you to connect with the character in a really cool way that only games or experiences can do. 
And there were at least a couple of times I got a little misty eyed in it where looking back at my own experiences, you know, growing up and loving and then also seeing my kids and Florence's experience as, as she kind of progresses through the story that uh, really stuck with me. I'm super glad I played it. There's a couple of really clever things. There's, uh, for example, there are these dialogue moments, like there's a, a first date you go on and you, the way you have a dialogue, it is not actual words, but it is putting little puzzle pieces together to create a dialogue box. Uh, and then as the, as the date progresses and it goes well, the puzzle pieces get simpler and simpler and simpler. And it's a beautiful, it just beautifully illustrates how things start really awkward and uncertain. And then as you move through and become more familiar with somebody, conversation flows better. I just thought that was such a beautiful way to express that. Yeah. And the, I would say the music is, is really nice too. And, and complements the story as it unfolds. Um, it's really well done. I think it's worth checking out. Uh, so I did play that this week. I also want to tell you guys about a game called Legendary Gary, uh, which uh, I bought on a whim on on um, Steam. I've been doing this thing lately where like, I want to play more cool Steam games. And every week I've been like finding these amazing games that I didn't even really know about. This is an independent game. Legendary Gary is a role-playing game about a guy who plays role-playing games. He's Gary... He has a pretty crappy life. He's kind of depressed. He has a girlfriend who kind of doesn't like him very much and might be breaking up with him. He's got a best friend who's kind of a douche. He's got uh, a job he hates. He's got a mom who treats him. She treats him very nicely, but she's kind of losing it and it's a little crazy. And he lives in her basement and he plays this video game called Legend of the Spear. And so you play as Gary. I've seen this episode of, of Black Mirror, Jeff. It didn't go well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of. It is kind of that. So you, half the game, you play Gary's life and you go to his job and you talk to people and you make decisions in his life. You even have to water your mother's garden and tend to her f- plants and do very mundane tasks. And the other half is you go into your basement, you sit down on the computer and you play Legend of the Spear until you want to go to sleep. And what starts to happen is your life and the video games start to overlap and things that happen in your real life are the answers to puzzles in the game. And and, it, and he starts freaking out. He's like, why does the game know about me? And it goes from there. Um, the game is all hand drawn. It, it's got a really interesting look to it. Um, it looks like old you know, like an old sci-fi paperback, almost the, the art style. And it's, it's depressing. It's slow moving. It was clearly made. I think it was made by one guy. I'm not hundred percent certain on that, but very much an independent spirit game. It, it has a lot of rough edges, but what it does, the, the combat system inside the game within the game is absolutely brilliant. And I cannot believe that I've never seen anything like this before. Maybe you guys know of a game I'm not thinking of that does it, but I'll explain it briefly. It's a turn-based role-playing game where uh, that takes place on a hexagonal grid when you get into combat. Uh, we've all seen stuff like that. But even back to Dungeons & Dragons, right? Dungeons & Dragons, the idea behind Dungeons & Dragons is each move in Dungeons and Dragons is six seconds 
of, of real time, right? And they try to break down what you can accomplish in six seconds. And you go based on your initiative. You know, you, you're one of the guys who are like, okay, my turn. Here I go because you have more initiative than everybody else. And you take six seconds to swing your axe or cast your spell or whatever it is. Oh, I just dropped my iPad. Oops. <laughs> you cast a spell I, of I break did. iOS device. Fling, flinging my arms around, gesticulating wildly on an audio show. Anyway. Um, <laughs> and that works, right? It makes a certain amount of sense. But if anybody has ever seen a, an action sequence in a movie, like let's imagine Jackie Chan or something, doesn't matter how much your initiative role would be in that situation. Everybody's moving at the same time. A lot of stuff's going on all at the same time. Well, in Legend of the Spear, inside Legendary Gary, you still have a uh, a, a turn-based system where everybody – you assign uh, attacks in, in succession, but everybody's actions happen at the same time. Your actions and the enemy's actions all happen in the exact same instant. And as you enter combat, there is a little play button at the bottom, and you can press it at any time to see – how that move is going to play out. So you'll see what the exactly what the enemy is going to do. You know exactly what where they're going to move and how they're going to attack or what they're going to block. And you can, you know, assign your character's actions and press play and see how it would affect it, whether you would dodge their attack, whether you would be able to hit them first or that they would block you. All this stuff, you can, you can do that as many times as you want before you set your plan to, you know, final. But then once you do that move, that all of that ha- happens. All of it happens in, instantly. Everybody's moves happen all at once. And then you do the next round. And, and it goes and goes and goes until you finally win. And once you win the battle, you have the opportunity to now press play for the entire battle. And it strings together all those moves into what has become this beautifully choreographed Jackie Chan-esque action sequence where I move to the right and dodge the kick of the bad guy. Meanwhile, the other guy on my team goes behind him and grabs him and throws him. And then the girl, you know, run moves up here and jabs another enemy. And it's all happening smoothly in all at the same time. It's brilliant. Is there a reason other than beauty to watch it? Or is there a gameplay reason? Like if you watch it, do you get like a perk or a buff or no. is it just see it's the just, you, you, you successful in this, in this, uh, fight continue or play the, the little movie that you created of the fight. It's just a nice little feature, but yeah. effectively it's a really engaging fight, uh, mechanic you know because you have to plan and the way you plan is different than any other turn-based game where most games you have no idea what the enemy is going to do on their turn sometimes they you know they have a tell or something but this one you know exactly what's going to happen and you can choreograph it and sometimes even knowing what they're going to do it's not easy to avoid or always do the right thing like you, you get yourself into situations that are tough i wish Someone with more means would be able to take this concept and run with it because as is, it's really, really cool, but it's, there's a lot of potential there that could be, that could go further. There's, it it is a lot of rough around the edges. The art style is very static and I can imagine doing this in a way where you do get a friggin' awesome movie of, uh, grapples and throws. And it's so cool when like one guy, 
punches another punches an enemy into another teammate and he punches him back and you do feel like you're in this crazy barroom brawl that's been choreographed by a Hollywood stunt person at the end of it um and i think like a triple a game with that same concept would be so rad because this concept is is cool but it's kind of stuck in this game that is very melancholy and very depressing and very plodding purposefully i mean it's trying to convey this sense of going to work every day and hating your life and meeting people that are really awful and all that stuff. But that's a very heavy thing inside of which is a really compelling idea that I hope has life elsewhere as well. I think that'd be an incredible thing for like a Batman or daredevil game to have that totally. type of thing. Or any like a turn-based superhero game with this mechanic would be freaking awesome. It would be so neat. Yeah. So again, that's called Legendary Gary, and it's really I think I think it's fifteen bucks on Steam. Uh, I thought it was full of really interesting ideas, an interesting visual style. The story itself is very outside the box and interesting. It just doesn't completely come together as a an amazing experience, but it's got so much potential. The aesthetic of the game reminds me a lot of some of the lower budget Adult Swim shows that exist. Yes, um, yes. Or or even like late nineties MTV cartoon shows, just like it it looks purposeful but also kind of uncomfortable on purpose. Yeah. Um so I, I definitely have to see what you're talking about with the gameplay to see because from an art from an artistic standpoint, I'm not quite sold on it, but uh the battling stuff from what I've seen, because I'm looking at the trailers while while you've been describing it, and uh the battle stuff definitely looks pretty interesting. And <laughs> I have to say, I have to temper my enthusiasm a little bit because it's still, it's very, uh, unrefined, you know, that there, I still think there are a lot of things that could be done with the specific actions that your characters have that could make it more thrilling and more exciting. Um, it's not a perfect system, but it's got such great ideas and I don't know. I, I really think there's a lot of potential there. So. Yeah. Again, that's called Legendary Gary. I uh, also briefly wanted to mention the fact that my favorite game, uh, Heroes of the Storm, just got voice chat added baseline in the game. Like this is a phone app that you have to download and then use your phone <laughs> to use? No, it's not a Nintendo game. Uh, this is built, baked right into uh, Heroes of the Storm now is voice chat and it's opt in, which I think is the best way to do it. So if you start a match uh, with other human beings, it will ask you, Hey, do you want to jump into voice chat? And it'll show everybody on your team that is in voice chat and it's all pushed to talk. Uh, so you can participate or not participate as much as possible uh, or as much as you, you prefer. But uh, I thought I'd bring it up because I wonder First of all, I don't know how much multiplayer stuff you play, Gerard, with with strangers, but I wonder what you guys think about this kind of a a feature to get strangers to talk to one another. I think it could be good, but it also could be bad. I think there's, um, you know, I I have a lot of YouTube and and stream friends who are women, who are people of color, who are people who experience... uh, racism and prejudiceness and sexism across the board and uh the the biggest proponent of this is online gaming um and so especially in a game like heroes of the storm that game is all about communication 
And losing in a, in a match of Heroes of the Storm means you are bad at communicating. And not necessarily <laughs> you personally, but your team is bad at communicating. And so when you do ranked random or to, or duo queuing in ranked and you're suddenly working with three other people or four other people, depending on which mode, you then have to go from being someone who's just good at the game to someone who can maintain a conversation and come up with a game plan in a way where these strangers can work together. And in a perfect world where voice chat exists in that realm, in that instance, I'm all for it. But as the internet is the internet, there are many moments where that's not the case. You're going to start playing with someone and they're going to be like, you know, racist thing here. You sound like a girl, blah, blah, blah. And it, it kind of snowballs. And so, and, and I've experienced some of that a little bit in Overwatch because Overwatch uh, has that functionality. Um, and I'm surprised that uh, it took uh, this long for Heroes of the Storm to kind of develop this, um, considering that both properties are Blizzard oriented. But I think it's 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 too early to tell. I, 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 want, I want to believe that the Heroes of the Storm community is uh more mature than most because they care about their game a lot and they're very proud of their game but again it's the internet so <laughs> it's, a yeah. to- it's a toss-up you only think they're more mature right now because you haven't had voice chat with them yet then <laughs> <laughs> well i will say anecdotally my first week of this, this i think they put it in on wednesday uh last week um my first week of this and, and again, these are early days. These are people who've been playing this game presumably quite a lot and haven't had this feature. So I think it may not be representative of how it's actually going to play out over the long term. But I will say it's been pretty positive. I haven't had anybody uh, say anything uh, objectionable. And I've had a couple of games where clearly there was a female voice on the other end. And I, I, I thought that was cool and there didn't get any harassment. I totally understand that that is a problem and it's one I haven't had to deal with personally. So I don't understand, uh, you know, at firsthand and I'm sensitive to that for sure, but I'm, I'm very happy to hear that not show up yet, uh, in any of the games I've played. Um, I will say it's interesting to me that most of the time people don't say anything. And I think it's weird because maybe it's just people aren't used to talking in this game yet. Uh, How how demanding is, and this is just my ignorance to the game, but like how easy is it to take your hand and push a button to talk? Does that make sense? Like in Overwatch. You're pushing buttons anyway. Yeah. So it's not, it's not like a far reach to hit. No. Tilde. Or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's fine. Um, but I, I, I tend to find that most people uh, say hello at the at the beginning, at least so far, and then we'll say a few things in the game, mostly like "good job" or um, "I'm going down here" or whatever. Uh, but it has a, a I'm, I've been only playing unranked in the last week, so um, why why is that? Because I got to gold, dude, and I'm, <laughs> I feel good about myself. I don't want to ruin it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> so maybe in ranked it'll be it's more intense, but um, so far it has been a lot less impactful than I thought, a lot less strategic than I thought. Um, but I just think it's a fascinating experiment to take a game that's been going on, you know, in full release what two years and in beta before that and another year, and then throw that community into this feature. It just it's an interesting sociological experiment in my my opinion, and I, I'm fascinated by it. 
how I've liked it, and I don't know if Heroes is this way, but it's like you're playing a game with randoms because you don't have your squad or whatever, not ready to go, and you want to play the game, so you jump in and you play, and then it's like stay as a group. Like if you have a good round with some randoms and you stay as a group, mm. then it's an easy way to start. It's almost like uh, you go on a blind date. You matched on Tinder. Let's go on a date. Then it's like, did you have right. fun? Let's give each other our cell phone numbers so we can actually text. So it's like That's interesting. play a game with randoms, have a good time. Now we're going to voice chat. Now let's see how this goes. Oh, this is really fun. Now we're going to become uh, Steam friends, <laughs> you know, whatever that next step is. Now, do you want to play with us? Here's our here's our Discord. <laughs> and then you can. Yeah, yeah. But like getting randoms that you've had a good time with, it's it's cumbersome to then be like, you know, not super hard, but it is annoying to like then DM them your Discord, get them in that channel, get set up. And this way it's a it's easy avenue to voice chatting. Uh, one of the things that I've, I've enjoyed is that there's a draft. I've been playing Unranked Draft and uh, there's much more discussion in that because it's so hard to type out. You know, I can play this. I can do that. Are you going to – we need a tank. We need a healer or whatever. All that's people try to do it with typing, including myself, but it's it's cumbersome and there's a a, to- a clock ticking down as people have to make their picks. And it's so much easier just to be able to say it. Um, so that's a, a clear improvement. But it remains to be seen if it'll start adding the toxicity that people report from Overwatch. I hope not. All right, so that's my playlist, and um, we'll. Uh, Move on from that now, but I do have to thank our second sponsor talking about uh, Christian, talking about finding someone you like and sticking with them. It can be hard. It can be hard, but luckily there is something like our sponsor eHarmony. If you're trying online dating, it chances are you've got a lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of headaches. Uh, there's lazy text messages, dead end conversations, random matches that don't even turn into dates or people that are just trying to hook up. Whatever it is, it's, it's a landmine out there. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a war. Uh, but it doesn't have to be. eHarmony actually makes it much, much easier. You find real people. You find people that are actually matched to you in a real interesting way. And it's all easy. All you got to do is answer a few questions. Uh, that takes just a few minutes to answer their questions. Uh, these are not just yes or no questions. These are things that the, that have been proven to help find people like you that will like you, that you will like, that will have uh, some chemistry right from the start. And they, they've refined this method to better find what you're looking for, what other people are looking for. It took, takes about 10, excuse me, 15, 20 minutes to answer all the questions. And, uh, you don't have to stress about anything. And it's unlike other dating sites because it's really trying to find someone for you. I actually met my wife on an online dating site. So I can attest for the fact that this stuff works. It, you're not going to find creepos. It's actually, uh, it's actually a life changing thing for me. It was a life changing thing. I unless, met my wife and unless you're into creepos, then you will find yourself a creepo. You know, you is, that, is that how it works? Creepos for creepos. Yeah. You got, you put in what, you know, it, it's, you know, it take time to answer the quiz. Honestly, you can't. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it, it brings compatible people together is what you're saying, right? Yeah. Compatible people. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we're going to give you a free month with eHarmony. And that's just because you listen to our show. When you enter promo code DLC, 
you'll get a free month when you sign up for a three-month subscription. So stop waiting and start your journey to a satisfying, meaningful relationship. It can be fun to play around with online dating apps, but when you're ready to fall in love with someone and have a meaningful relationship, there's one app that's built to bring you real love, eHarmony. Come see how eHarmony can change your life. Go to eHarmony.com and get started. Enter promo code DLC at checkout, eHarmony, E-H-A-R-M-O-N-Y.com. If you're hoping for VR talk this week, I got great news. I actually had an interview with some of the designers of the upcoming PSVR game Moss, which will be after the end of this episode. It'll be bonus content, so be sure to stick around for that. It's an awesome discussion about a game that I'm really excited for that comes out uh, this week. But we are doing some quick questions, which are your questions that you guys send to us. There are two ways that you can send us quick questions for future episodes. Send them to dlcfeedback at gmail.com. That's where you can send quick questions or long questions or any other comments you have about the show, dlcfeedback at gmail.com. Or in our subreddit at 5x5dlc.reddit.com, there is a sticky thread for quick questions where people can put uh, quick questions there. So let's start it right up. This quick question comes from Austin Sanders. He says, I need your help. I just landed my job of a lifetime where I'll get to travel the States and put my family in a better situation, but I won't be home much because the travel is really intensive, but I still want to be a gamer. Should I go switch? Or I was thinking maybe a gaming laptop. I'll have plenty of downtime on flights and waiting at airports or in hotel rooms, and I just want to get the most out of my game time. So, Gerard, what what would you suggest? Gaming laptop or switch? With the price and cost of a laptop, I would recommend a switch because you can... To get, a, to get a gaming laptop to be exactly the way that you want and then purchase games can be a hassle versus starting at a $300 price point for a Switch, maybe a carrying case and some other things to bump it to $350. But then you're talking a massive library of AAA and indie games that range anywhere from, from $7 to $60, and you can play them on the go anytime. And so the, the amount of time and investment that you would put on your laptop would be way more expensive than doing the, you know, cost affordable thing of having a switch. Christian, what do you think? Switch or gaming laptop? Well, that's the hundred percent right answer, especially with Rocket League uh, available on Switch. If you have good Wi-Fi, I mean, you're covered for forever. You've got all your gaming needs covered, of course, uh, both. But like, I, I realize how dumb that answer is. But like, they're great G- gaming laptops now are way better than what they used to be in terms i mean you probably need power because like and you (laughs) this gaming laptop i showed you one jeff and it was like it has a 1080 in it the battery lasts 20 minutes but (laughs) it's 128 hertz refresh screen Um, but now it's really looking at five minutes battery but you can also do 4k just carry the carry a brick with you um but if you can i think both can serve your needs i think if you need a laptop for travel and you can justify it as a business, I mean, for business, and you can justify it as a business expense, and you honestly can use it um, for work as well. Gaming laptops also aren't as over the top as they used to be. So you could sit in a meeting and work on, you know, some of the new gaming laptops, and it wouldn't be like, what up, nerds? <laughs> I'm going to here to talk some business and pwn you noobs on spreadsheets. Like, it, it blends in better. Um, <laughs> but Switch is clearly the right answer here, Jeff, right? I think so. And for me, it all comes down to playing on the plane. 
because uh, I have been that guy. I once took a gaming laptop <laughs> did. on a flight to Australia <laughs> and played. I played Rogue Legacy that entire way, man. I had my <laughs> I had my USB uh, control, my Xbox 360 controller plugged into my laptop, and it was awesome. But man, it's cumbersome to like set up your laptop on the tray, and you know, especially if you want to play with a mouse. Oh man, you're in trouble. It's it's not easy. Holding the switch in your hand is just so much easier. And the great thing about the switch is so many, as as Gerard pointed out, so many of those indie games that have been traditionally on Steam and nowhere else are making their way to Switch. And you're going to have so many awesome games to be able to play on it. I think it's just the easier choice all around. And it also happens to be the less expensive choice. So, uh, all right, quick question. This comes from Excelsior from the subreddit. Do you prefer your enemies to level up with you or to just utter, utterly dominate old foes? Me, I love to dominate. Nothing feels better than smashing the face of a character who wants me to use all of your items. So, Gerard, what do you think? Uh, level up the, the enemies all around you in a sort of Bethesda-style, uh, go anywhere you want, everything will always be comparable to your level, or go to the place, revisit the place, uh, Superman 2-style, and punch them in the face. You know, I think it depends on the game. <laughs> I think for me, both. Uh, but if I had to pick one, I probably would say dominating, um, especially when the game is a bit more difficult because there's nothing more gratifying than having to conquer, having to train and to level up and to get better than something that's standing in your way. And then you conquer it and you, 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 you know, go, gone above and beyond. And then there's another thing that's right there and it's worse. And there's nothing feels better <laughs> than just like becoming better than your enemy and, and learning and growing from that. Yeah. Yeah. There's that. I, I, I reminded of like do, the doom remake where it's like, Oh, you're, you're about to deal with a demon you've never seen before. And you're like, Oh yeah. 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 Oh God. It's hard. Oh, I, I, I killed that demon. Okay. Next level. There's four of those guys in a room. And you're like <laughs> what? four of those guys. Um, yeah, I'm a I'm a dominate uh, I'm in the dominate category as well. And this is exactly the Superman 2 reference that I made a second ago. I mean, how satisfying is it for Superman to walk back in that bar at the end of that movie and sit down at that bar with a guy and then spin him around on his stool and push him <laughs> down the whole bar and his face hits all the glasses. Oh, so satisfying. Uh, I, I like being I like being Superman any chance I can get. Uh Christian, how about you? Yeah, it's dominating. Your Doom example is is the perfect one, Jeff. But I I think the key is also, as Gerard mentioned, is this idea that there needs to be something harder around the corner. And it's the games that do that right, that that dole that out perfectly where um, you conquer something and you can't go back there and, and dominate those people to grind if you need to or just to feel good about yourself for a little bit. But you know there's something harder coming around the corner. And I think it's when games don't progress in that fashion um, that if they feel they leave you feeling um, it's a little lackluster. You don't feel like you've accomplished anything. And, and one notorious example from a few years ago was the first shadow of Mordor shadow of war. They're named so horribly the first shadow game um, where that game you, you dominated, 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 dominated. And then you're progressing through enemies and it was like, and now here it is the final challenge. Oh wow. You're real OP. Here are the credits. <laughs> there, was, <laughs> there was just nothing else to it. So it needs to have that right balance. And Doom 2016 certainly did that really, really well. Quick question from Aaron Suarez. 
Are all underwater levels, dungeons, stages, or areas in any game terrible? <laughs> Gerard, underwater levels bad. Just, just assume it. I, you know, I think I think it depends on on the developer. I think it depends on on who understands uh, a water level. For the most part, all of us hate water levels, right? It's like the the general assumption. But I mean, if you've played Shovel Knight, the Treasure Knight stage is is immaculate. It's a great time that balances difficulty but like still the floatiness of being in water and it's not annoying ever it's always just a fun time and so i think it kind of depends uh I, I think that from like a general standpoint all of us do think that uh but when someone does it right they can really do it right christian how about you underwater levels if underwater levels are all bad then i raise you 10 echo the dolphins come Whoa. at me <laughs> Come at me, bro. Actually, I like the, I will stand by the first one. Uh, the sequels, I think, get progressively worse. Uh, the first one blew my mind when it came out as a kid. I loved that game and I still love it despite, despite its faults. Um, very few things make me feel as anxious as underwater levels, but I also feel like that's their point. The music and Sonic, especially and, and reused again in Sonic Mania when you're running out of air and that music, um, it is honestly a thing of my nightmares. Like I will have nightmares with that music. Very few things make me as nervous and anxious as, as that music does. So I think because of that, I, I side on team terrible, but I, I agree that they are sometimes done, done well. Well, I'm a big uh, thing that annoys me in, in any game is a, is a time limit is a ticking clock on the screen. Mm-hmm. And by virtue of air <laughs> underwater levels tend to just come with a time limit as a prerequisite. And usually the time limit is very short. So it's very annoying to be like, Ooh, what's this cool thing? Oh, you can't breathe. Got to go to the surface. But, but I've completely changed my opinion on underwater levels because of subnautica. Subnautica <laughs> is my echo. The dolphin subnautica makes me love underwater, makes me love playing underwater. I love that game so much. And it, Definitely has all of the things that you don't like about underwater things, slow moving, uh, running out of air, all that stuff. But somehow that game, it just makes the, the, the excitement of exploring the undersea world make up for it in spades. It's, it's great. So the insomniac wasn't insomniac developed, um, Metroidvania was like a water-based little submarine game. Yes. Yes. What was that game called? Uh, Something of the deep. Yeah. Song of the deep. Song of the deep. That was well done. I liked the, the, the floatiness that water gave to that game. Cause really at that perspective, water is, it can be a space game, right? And we don't hate space levels. I think right. it is that breath timer because in water, rarely when they're presented in platformers are we given breathing apparatus. It's always now you, now you have this timer on you. Good luck, idiot. And, and that's the part I think that makes me the most anxious. Here's our last one. Quick question. This comes from Elin. He says, I am trying to teach my mother how to play video games. She has very little experience with them, but would like to get into it. Do you have any suggestion on how to go about doing that? Love your show. I love this question. Um, Gerard, do you have any suggestions for getting somebody's mom into video games? Um, I think this is something that I do often with my you know, I used to work, I have a lot of sales experience. I used to work at Best Buy my whole life, uh, you know, six, seven years of selling video games. It's kind of where my passion started in gaming and in my YouTube career. And and the, the thing that I would help, quote unquote, sell to customers 
if you will, is I would kind of give them my interpretation of what the story is of the game. And I think that painting that canvas is so important for someone because, um, you know, obviously everyone's experience is different, but by saying, Hey, you know, you play as a gentleman in a red outfit who has to save the woman (laughs) that he loves by jumping on these friendly mushroom looking characters. And there's this big, bad Godzilla type character at the end that, you know, you'll, he was kind of funny and kind of weird and quirky, you know, it's kind of a weirder way of, of describing Mario, if you will. Right. But for someone who doesn't know how to play video games, that journey could be something that starts the rest of their career as a gamer. And, uh, I'd either kind of go with that, you know, break down basic story elements in games to kind of see what, what she may like, um, or just do the, I know it seems weird, but, um, do games that don't require a lot of gameplay to understand things like, uh, you know, a Mario party or, uh, a cart racer, things that can, be easily digestible um, just from a gameplay perspective. You know, don't need the story, don't need any of that, but picking up a controller and pressing A, now that I can do. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I think those are great, great suggestions. I would add uh, co-op is your friend. Um, Playing a game with someone at the same time, especially couch co-op game, I think will make the experience uh, communal and fun because you're doing something together. You're spending time with each other. I think that you're already a step ahead when when you're trying to get somebody involved. And remember that she's there to be with you and your, your way of meeting her halfway on that is do find the things that she likes and reinforce that. Don't go, Oh my gosh, I like playing Halo. So let's play Halo together. Go, what, what do you think she would like? What are the kinds of experiences that might, you know, is, is, uh, does she like to cook? Does she like to, uh, you know, go hiking? Are there games that, that seem like an experience of going hiking? You know, is that a kind of a cool thing? Might, might there be a game that reinforces some of the things she already enjoys, uh, and, and I, there's a game for every taste, so I think there are ways to find that. Christian, do you have suggestions? Yeah, I think those are all great ideas. I like to start with the idea that games are so many different types of things today and that to be a gamer, while it might sound intimidating, there's actually a lot of different ways that you can approach it. So I start with something like games can be me- – uh, mechanics based and that's still very much a game and something like tetris where it's just saying here's you know this is all this game is is you're solving this puzzle and you're figuring it out and you're moving these pieces around in a relatively simple way and it's just you against yourself high score and then examples of that type of gameplay and then something like florence where a game can be a narrative experience where your interaction is actually fairly limited but you're interacting with this story and it's unfolding. And here are some great examples of that flower or journey or something where it's, you're experiencing this beautiful world and you're a part of it, but it's not super complicated. And then again, like you mentioned, seeing where their interests are and then talking about how some games blend those two things. And you can have examples of um, story and mechanics coming together and, and figuring out what their tastes are, because I think you're thought about like, if they're like hiking or whatever, Jeff, it's a good one. But I think also expanding on that, it's like, 
a game like The Room on iOS, where it's like a puzzle mechanic, but uh, really cool snazzy graphics could pull someone in in a way that they don't necessarily like a Rubik's Cube necessarily. Like no one would say, I love Rubik's Cubes. And you'd be like, the game for you. <laughs> um, but then slowly transitioning them or building their base as they show what they're experienced in or what they like. And then um, I, for me, the best way that, and this has been from with my daughters, allowing them to experience a 3D camera um, has been Zelda Breath of the Wild because it's such a, you can get into such a big open field and let them roam and run without the camera constantly getting caught on interior um, architecture that can become frustrating and they can figure out that dual stick control. And then this morning, my two and a half year old one was on a team that won three rounds of Splatoon two in a row, and she was never the last on her team. So it's a progression that wow. has worked well for her. Getting that pro circuit, Splatoon ah, two. She's one of be us there. has to pay the bills. You know what I mean? Hidden. Thank you very much, everybody, for sending in those quick questions. Again, dlcfeedback at gmail.com or the subreddit is where you send those. Uh, that's going to do it for this show. We do have our parting gift coming up. So stick around for that. But And bonus content after that. Oh, and bonus content after that. Yes, indeed. Do not forget. That's a it's a really great interview about uh, um about Moss that um I'm really excited for you guys to hear. Uh but Gerard Khalil, thank you so much for being here, sir. Uh we appreciate having you. Yeah, thank you for having me. If uh, you guys on the internet want to check out more of me, you can check me out at youtube.com slash that one video gamer. And I have a show called The Completionist. It's a man versus game every single week. I've been completing a game a week for seven years. I've done over 250. Someone help me. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Uh, that is quite a feat. That is quite a feat. Uh, Christian, how about you? What do you got going on this week? Oh, uh, man, is it this week? I think, wow, it is. It's coming up soon. That's actually not this week. It's next week. But next week, Tuesday, March 6th, I will be headlining with Stats in San Diego. So a show outside of LA, if you want to come down. It's the first time I'm trying to put together this quote-unquote new hour of material, stuff that I've been working on, but it's not on either um, Moment in Time or We're All Gonna Die, and seeing how it feels as a long set instead of just like a 10, 15-minute chunk here or there, if I can put the through line through it that I want to. So that's Tuesday, March 6th, 9 p.m. Free show at the stats, uh, 3343 Adams Avenue in San Diego. Come out to that. It should be a blast. And then if you, yeah, if you want to watch my first hour of metal gear, um, the internet actually cut out on me a little after an hour in. So it's like an abrupt end, but I was ready for it to, <laughs> to end then anyway. <laughs> so I was, I, man, I feel like I gave that, like I didn't explain necessarily why I didn't like that game. Maybe next week I can dive back into it. Just as a fan of the series, it rubbed me the wrong way. Uh, but that's on Twitch, which is just my name, Christian Spicer. And then YouTube is Christian Spicer 713, the numbers 713 representing H-Town. Uh, Jeff, what about you? Well, I have other shows for you to listen to. If you want to hear me talk about movies and TV shows, I do the Slash Filmcast every week. This week, we're going to be talking about Annihilation, uh, really cool sci-fi movie uh you can find that at slashfilmcast.com and i also do a comedy science show which if you haven't listened to it i urge you to give it a shot it's only 20 minutes or less every episode and i guarantee you you'll learn something and you'll laugh uh, it's called we have concerns and you can find it at wehaveconcerns.com all right guys let's wrap things up with our parting gift
Gerard, do you have a suggestion to help people get through their week? Do something for yourself and don't feel guilty about it. That's something Hmm. that we tend to, as society, have built up where we're kind of trying to serve other people or trying to make everyone happy. Just take an hour and or two or three even and just do something for you and don't feel guilty that you did it for yourself. I love that. That's great. Says the guy trapped by a video game in a room. Uh, Christian, how about you? Do you got a parting gift? Yeah, I want to recommend Vance Joy's new album, Nation of Two. Um, his lyrics aren't certainly the, the the most original in terms of how they're describing love or loss. But, uh, man, his voice and the way he plucks away at that guitar, uh, I love him. He's incredible. And I'm sure at some point I will get sick of hearing him at every coffee shop I walk into or on every car holiday commercial or jewelry commercial or whatever, as I'm sure it will get overplayed like his first album did. But right now I am really, really liking Vance Joy's new album called nation of two. Very cool. Uh, we got a listener's suggested parting gift. This was sent into DLC feedback at gmail.com. This comes from Chris. He says, hi guys, I thought I'd submit a parting gift. I thought both you guys and your listeners might enjoy. I have lately been playing a lot of Wolverblade on my PS4, though I understand it's also been out a while on Switch and it is now also available on Xbox One and Steam. The game is a brawler in the style of Golden Axe or Streets of Rage, but the obvious comparisons are more towards the former. I'm suggesting this in part because Christian's recommendation of Punisher on the Mega Drive has already brought me hours of entertainment, and I'm hoping I could return the favor here. Also, Jeff, I think you'd get a kick out of the attention to detail in terms of history. The lore is loaded with well-researched historical snippets, and during the campaign, you unlock short video clips with voiceovers detailing various historical sites in Britain. Anyway, love the show and hope you get a chance to check the game out. Thanks, Chris. Uh, I played a lot of Wolverblade at an event uh, a while back. I can't remember exactly which one it was, maybe a PAX or something. Uh, And I did think it looked very, very cool. So thanks for the suggestion. That's Wolverblade available on uh, all the consoles. My parting gift is a podcast that I've been loving. Uh, There was a time not too long ago where my podcast diet was almost exclusively entertainment stuff. Uh, talking about all the things that I love. And it has <laughs> slowly become more and more uh, ways to just get new ideas into my head and learn things uh, that are outside the realm of entertainment. And this one's a great one. It's called Stay Tuned with Preet. It's a podcast by Preet Bharara, who is a former prosecutor and a very, very smart guy. He has other very smart people on talking about politics and law and uh, a lot of interesting topics. And I highly recommend it. I love it. It comes out every Thursday. Stay tuned with Preet. All right. That is going to do it uh, for this episode of DLC. Thanks again to Gerard Khalil and Christian Spicer for hanging out with me. Thanks to all of you guys in the chat rooms uh, over at uh, caffeine.tv slash Jeff Canada and uh, on Christian's Twitch channel, Twitch uh, slash Christian Spicer, right? That's that's how it is. Yes, sir. And uh, thanks to our musical contributors, Patrick L., Sean Madigan, and Zero Star for the cool bumper music. Thank you to all of you who download the show. We appreciate it. We will be back next week. Uh, Stick around. There is bonus content coming at the end of this episode. But until next week, think about what you put out into the world. Make it a better place.
I'm joined now by Chris Alderson and Tam Armstrong from Polyarch. Uh, they're just about to release their new PlayStation VR game, Moss, uh, that comes out this week. And uh, I got a chance to play it at E3 last year, and I was absolutely charmed by it. Uh, the main character, little Quill, is a mouse. You control both Quill and a uh, sort of unseen VR presence that can affect the environment. Uh, I just, uh, I really fell in love with the game and I'm excited to play more. And I'm so excited to welcome both of you here to talk about the game. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you very much. So tell me a little bit about, as as you're sitting here uh, virtually on the eve of release, uh, tell me a little bit about the journey of bringing this game to VR and, and uh, how, how it came about and, and what that process was of, of designing it. Absolutely. So the game was designed from for VR from the ground up and the whole concept, uh, which surprises people usually when we tell them actually came from mechanics first. Uh, the theme of Quill and her environment is actually a product of the fact that we wanted to make sure we developed a game that was native for VR. And one of the principles that we thought was very important in doing so was that it involved physical interaction. And another principle that we thought was important is that we tried to stay uh, true to scale. And so we were left with this uh, general gameplay premise that we had where we wanted a character adventuring through the environment that you needed to be able to interact with and that was true to scale. And the conversations that's, that came out of that is where Quill and her world were born from. It's amazing, I think, the the sense of scale that's possible in VR. It certainly is one of the strengths of the technology, is that feeling that small stuff is small and how I relate to it as a, as a human being uh, really comes through. Um, is Was there anything you learned in dealing with scale that, through the course of, of designing the game that you didn't expect? Well, the main thing is if the scale is off at all, you feel you do feel odd when you're in the world, and it kind of pulls you out of the experience. Overall, we wanted to make sure that the experience is very comfortable, mm-hmm. and we also wanted to make sure that it just there wasn't there weren't these outlying things that just made you feel like something was out of place. And so early on, uh, one thing that the artists did is we went outside and actually like brought rulers outside to measure leaves and rocks and, and twigs to make sure that everything felt real. Wow. And to have a baseline like that is very important um, from the very beginning because if you feel like you're not in the experience, you're not going to believe that Quill is there and you're not going to have that emotional reaction. And so making sure that we got that from the very beginning was very important to us. Now, one of the things that struck me right away in playing the demo at E3 last year was the fact that I'm not just – controlling Quill alone, uh, that I'm actually, there's a presence of me as this entity in the game world. In fact, the very first thing in the demo was sort of being able to peer into this puddle of water and see my reflection as this creature or entity or being in that world. Was that always part of the, of the concept or did you come to that later? So that character is called the reader and that was there from the very beginning we knew from the very beginning that we wanted to really leverage the possibilities for tactile interaction. I think it's a very universal and human thing to to play with things with your hands, to play with toys. And what's so exciting about VR is that we can build a virtual toy that you can then play with. 
And adding Quill in there as a personality on top of that was an absolute bonus. But yeah, the character of the reader and your ability to reach into the world was was part of the concept from day one. I, you talk about uh, building a virtual thing to play with. I have my little, my physical quill here that I got at E3 last year. I've, I've cherished since I got it. And I, I actually can play with the physical version as well. But uh, quill as a character, as as is uh, illustrated by that beautiful statue, uh, is adorable. And uh, I think a standout. I think everybody that watched that E3 trailer was charmed by quill. Was there... Were there any other versions of Quill? Did you did you iterate on that character at all, or was it always going to be a mouse? Um, it was always it was always a mouse. Um, yeah, yeah, I think there was ten minutes where we considered <laughs> making a game about toys, and another yeah. ten minutes where we considered making a game about small aliens. But <laughs> but but it very quickly we all agreed the idea of building a mouse. And building a world for that character was the most compelling. And then I'm sure Chris can tell you about her evolution. Yeah, her evolution. She started the very first concept that was created that sort of eventually became Quill. Cool. Was, I was doing a lineup of all these different rodents. And one of them was this, the smallest one. But he was actually this like small thief character that everyone's like, oh, I love that character. And it was actually sort of like an old, older male mouse. But... There's something charming about this like grumpy small mouse character that that we that we liked, and so that sort of evolved. And there were a few concepts that kind of made her a little bit more humanoid, and just none of them were none of them felt right. There was a version that was like really heroic, and as actually Tam, who's sitting right next to me, he came over and was like, "There's just something not right about this," and we we talked about it. And what we we realized is that we were we were losing the sort of like the the emotional response that you get from. Maybe if you ever had a pet mouse growing up or, you know, a dog or something like that, that emotional reaction when you look at an animal in the eyes and like you want to care for it is what we wanted to get back. And so that sort of really kicked off the the final evolution of where Quill became um, who she is now. And uh, yeah, the rest is sort of came developed through the story building and sort of shaped her personality. But um, for, from very early on her, she was, she was a mouse. So it was probably like, she was probably created maybe two and a half years ago. Yeah. Uh, some of our yeah. earlier prototypes when Polyarchs was at the very beginning of um, forming the studio. Mm-hmm. And you talked about the player character being the reader, and there's very much a storybook aesthetic. Uh, you open pages of a book and you dive into that story. Each chapter is a new new part of the book. Um, talk to me about the the sort of fairy tale aesthetic and and what how that informed what you actually do in the game. So we wanted to make sure that in the process of doing our world building, we included enough layers that if if people respond to Quill and her world, we have more things we can talk about after the first game. And so we did spend some time building a mythology, and we got to really focus the mythology by virtue of the design of the game mechanics and by virtue of the design of Quill, we got to focus the mythology around little things. And of course, there's rich histories all over the world of, of little people and little magical beings. And so, uh, and that, you know, that comes from fairy tales. And so we just, we really like that tradition, that, that fantasy and that kind of magic is certainly present in popular media, but it's explored quite a bit less. And so we wanted to explore some of that and, and it all just kind of fit together the scale of the game mechanics and the scale of the story and all of these 
mythologies that we like just kind of all were complementary to each other as we were developing the game. And that's what we end up with Moss. It is so charming, the game world and, and colorful. And it does feel like that, that storybook. Um, and I'm, I'm a big proponent of VR. I talk about it all the time on the show. I love the tech and I think it has so much possibility. And one of the things that was so fun about sitting down and playing Moss for the first time was uh, this feeling of being in that world and manip- physically manipulating all the elements of the world to solve puzzles and to help Quill and, and fights and stuff. Can you talk to me about uh, the I, how you designed puzzles at, to keep that tactile nature and what kinds of things we can expect to experience throughout the game? I mean, the the first thing that I think we learned is while trying to decide what kind of puzzles we wanted was we had to kind of start over in what we thought would make great mechanics for video game in VR. Um, a lot of it is we became industrial designers. Like things need to, like if you need to, if you can twist something, it needs to look like you can twist it. If you need to pull something mm-hmm. and he's like, needs to look like you can pull it. And so that definitely changed the way we, we thought about the puzzle creation. Yeah. A lot of that really you, you could say it out loud and it sounds so obvious. It's almost not worth remarking, but it was, we surprised ourselves with how easy what that was to forget because we're so used to activating the computer terminal by pressing and holding X. And there's nothing wrong with that in a game where pressing and holding X is the best way to do that, but it's definitely not the best way to do that in VR. And so we just would keep falling into old habits. And so we, everything, in the game, I think to answer your question, how we came up with what we did, it was uh, intensive iteration. Just every interaction that you have in, in the game probably took no less than 10 different versions to make feel right. And and constantly reminding ourselves to look at things through the lens of physical interaction. So every component, we add a new enemy. One of the questions is, well, what what, is, what does it do when you're interacting with it? You want to make a new puzzle. Well, what part of the puzzle requires interaction? And so, you know, if we did our jobs right, it'll feel like it was all very natural. It'll feel like it just happened and like it all makes sense. But the truth is that every single one of those was a conscious decision and iteration on that conscious decision to make it feel like we didn't have to try as hard as we tried. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Work work so hard to seem effortless, right? Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love the fact that VR, I mean, we're, I guess we're in sort of, you know, a couple of years now uh, of, of VR games coming out. And I think we're getting to the point now where there's a level of maturity in these titles. Yours is a great example that feel like big, full games, you know, these, these games that you might expect from uh, a, a technology that's more mature. But I think as you were developing Moss, you were sort of in that wild west of, of VR development, right? Is that, has that, was that ex- your experience that you were sort of having to figure everything out and everybody that was in the space was sort of all figuring it out at the same time? Absolutely. Um, I think something that was really important was that we came in it with open minds. We all tested and like figured out what was awesome about VR to us individually and how that all of our ideas could kind of come together. Um, and there was also a lot of a lot of sharing of knowledge between studios too, like people discovering things and um, doing talks and saying things that didn't work for them. But other people would be like, well, I'll still, I'll still try that same thing and give it a shot. And they were able to be more successful. And um, there's just a, a really sense of community in the earlier times of VR, I think. Yeah. And we also had to be 
lacking examples of the things we wanted to do working already, we had to be pretty principled. And I mean, I mean that explicitly. We have on the wall of our office a set of design principles that we came up with during the creation of Moss. And I don't think they're universal VR design principles, but they're definitely the design principles for making a game like Moss as far as Polyarch is concerned. And we had lacking a, a previous guiding light of concrete examples. We just had to develop those principles and then and then remind ourselves of why they mattered or, or scratch them out if they didn't and use those as our uh, base building. I find that so fascinating. And uh, I can imagine that being both exhilarating and a little scary at the same time, right? Sort of having to reinvent the wheel a little bit. Um, it, are there things that you learned that VR allows you to do that you just couldn't do if this was a traditional you know, 2D game? Uh, absolutely. Um, from I mean, for me personally, the idea of coming in contact with a small creature and immediately like giving yourself to that character and wanting to protect it and move it through an environment and help 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 Quill uh, save a loved one was just something that, although you can feel emotion, you know, watching a movie or you know playing video games traditionally on a flat screen, um, there's just a whole other element of that character being there with you and going on this journey together that I think you just. For me personally, I, I've never felt that that way in a traditional video game. And, and we discovered that one. That, yeah. that was not, we had some notions ahead of time about physical interaction. And we had some notions ahead of time about scale. We surprised ourselves with how much we cared about Quill once we started bringing her to life and how much other people started to care. That, that one came out of nowhere. Yeah, after E3, a lot of people played and the, the response of about Quill in general, the I'm being really specific of of like one thing that came out of it was we, we pretty much doubled down on like what Quill is and how we can make her feel more lifelike because of the way people responded to her as a character during that E3 trailer uh, and demo timeframe. Yeah. Just that little ability to give her a pat, you know, and, and, and pet her on the back. It's like in a normal game, I, wouldn't care to do that necessarily, but there's something so special and magical about that in VR because it does feel like your own little diorama creature. That's, you know, that your little, uh, ant farm creature. That's, that's, that's all there just for you. It's, it's magic. Yeah. And it takes a really great animator too, to, to bring a character like that to life. Uh, Richard Lico knocked it out of the park. He's absolutely our one and only animator. So every, every motion and movement that is believable when you're with Quill was, uh, was his doing. Um, so I got to give him a little shout out. Now that you've kind of come through this process and the game is, is about to be released, what do you see as the future for VR? Are you are you hoping to create more games like this? Do you see uh, has this game sort of opened up new possibilities uh, with that tech in your eyes, or are you still seeing some shortcomings with it? What's your assessment of where VR is in general? I think that VR absolutely has room to become more mainstream as we are able to move away from needing quite as many wires and components, but I think that that's all just technical stuff that will sort itself out as it becomes more popular, which is very exciting. And then on the, on the game front, we, you know, it's been very inspiring to work on Moss and we have actually many other ideas about what we want to do. And so uh, including different genres and different 
game mechanics and different worlds. And so hopefully people respond to Moss and Quill in such a way that we are afforded the privilege to, to try some of those other things in the future. Well, it certainly seems like um, the game has a level of anticipation that uh, that is going to result in some people, you know, a lot of people playing it. And I think that Sony seems to be behind the game as well. And I know I'm very, very excited to play more of it. I only got a, a very tiny glimpse of the game so far, but um, I'm really excited to play more. And it, it comes out uh, this Tuesday, right? Correct. Yep. Midnight launch. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic well i i very much appreciate you guys taking the time and talking to me about the game and i wish you the best of luck on it awesome. thank you very much thank Thanks you for having us